chillin' and a you will hear about the eliminating of the negative and a accent on a positive. And gather round me, chillin', if you're willing, and sit tight while I start reviewing. Test, the test. Is this thing on? Oh, yes, it is. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, The Joyful Frugalista. And now here's your host, Serena Bird and Friends. Hello, Frugalistas, and welcome. Today, I have a very special guest. I loved reading his book. I have with me Joel Gibson, who's author of Kill Bills. He is a former reporter and editor at the Sydney Morning Herald, and he's spent the past seven years, or is it eight years now, (laughs) as the face of Australia's biggest consumer network, One Big Switch. Welcome, Joel. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Perhaps I can start by asking, what is One Big Switch? Sure. Well, One Big Switch is essentially a consumer network and it's got over a million members now who've joined up since 2011, I think, when it started, just before I got there. It started in 2011. I got there in 2012 and there's about 1.1, 1.2 million people who've joined. And what we do is we use that combined consumer power to go to energy retailers, insurance companies, sometimes governments if if it's a policy campaign and try to use that people power to get results for the people who are members of the group. What kind of results can you get your members? So what kind of money could I save if I was a member of One Big Switch? Thousands of dollars, hopefully. I mean, <laughs> really, if, if, you're a, if you're a member over a number of years, because, of course, we might have an energy deal now which runs for a month or two, and then that will have to close, and we'll find another one that runs for a couple of months. And most energy deals only last for, for 12 months, so every year or so. You should have a look and see if your plan is still dirt cheap. And if it's not, then you should switch again. So over years, I think, if you're constantly using our deals to make sure that you're on the cheapest energy you can find or the cheapest insurance, health insurance, good discounted but high quality life insurance, that sort of thing, then I would hope that over time you could save thousands of dollars. I totally agree with that. You can save an absolute fortune. And I'm always amazed at the amount of people who will, will go to work work really long hours, but won't put the money into themselves, really. They won't pay themselves first. Somehow their career is mythically going to save them. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's true. I just said to you before, and I often say this, you know, when I'm talking to people about this sort of thing, I think the biggest challenge when it comes to helping people save money is just getting them started, Mm. you know, just convincing them that it's worth their time and energy, that it's not going to take hours on the phone to a foreign call centre But there are some shortcuts and some really handy little tricks and strategies you can use to maximize your saving with minimal pain and minimal minimal hassle. (laughs) And that's what I set out when I set out to write this book. I wanted to show people the quickest, easiest, most painless way to save a lot of money over time. And if you do that, you'll get into habits and you'll just find that it'll become second nature and it won't feel like work anymore. And when you have a win and then you have another win and another win, you get on a bit of a roll, it actually it gives you a buzz. I know that sounds strange to some people, but... Yay, saving money. Saving money can give you a real buzz. <laughs> that feeling that you've hunted around, that hunt, that chase, and you've scored the best deal. Yeah, it is a rush, I think. I think you feel so small too sometimes when you're dealing with these very large, sophisticated businesses that we get our energy from or our insurance from or our home loan or whatever. And 
having a win, it feels like a David and Goliath moment. And I use the David and Goliath metaphor analogy in, in the book as well to describe one of the tricks that I recommend to people. But yeah, that's why it's so satisfying to have a win because it's just little old you and the odds are stacked against you. And as I was saying before, I really loved your book and I wasn't expecting your book to have so much humour in because let's face it, a book about negotiating and bills, you don't expect it to be funny and engaging. And the thing that really grabbed me straight off was the characterisation you had of the different negotiating styles. And usually when I read about negotiating tactics, it's really boring, dry things that come out of sort of organisational behaviour or, you know, courses taught at university where poor people have to go and try and negotiate a deal in mock settings and make a fool of themselves. But you have some really, really funny ways of describing the negotiating styles. Yeah, look, I think it just came out of the fact, as you say, I'm conscious of the fact that so many people who do what we do try to help people, people to save some money on their household budget do it so badly. And it is so sometimes so repetitive and so cookie cutter and it's not engaging. It just makes people feel like, it makes them feel guilty for not doing more about this stuff and it makes it all look a lot harder than it is. One of my particular loves is movies. And I and actually, when I went to university, I did a English literature, literature degree and I majored in film adaptations of movies. I wrote a kind of an honours thesis about that. So that was my thing was wow. movies and how to turn books into movies and so that's kind of uh, been one of my lifelong passions. And I thought, well, why can't I use movie references and other popular culture references just to try to get across to people what I'm, what I'm trying to tell them? And I did. I used, found a Robert De Niro movie reference, which, is, which gives one of the insider tricks its name. And there's an Elizabeth Taylor one. And there's The Red Dog, which is a great Australian film, of course. So <laughs> if you love movies and you love saving money, then hopefully you'll love this book. <laughs> do you have a favorite negotiating style out of those are you a de niro are you a red dog like what what resonates for you favorite that's like asking me to choose a favorite child but uh <laughs> I, think, um, I think maybe look i'm a big fan of the elizabeth taylor just because i think it can work again and again and again and look what the elizabeth taylor is is it's a savings trick that's based on the fact that Whole industries have been built on what I call the honeymoon pricing model. Mm-hmm. And everybody's seen it before. Mm-hmm. They get you in on a fantastic deal. It lasts about a year and then the price goes up or the coverage comes down or whatever it is and suddenly a good, a good deal becomes a dud deal after the first year. Now, that is a problem if you're a consumer, but only if you stay beyond the first year. And so what you can do in some industries this is not the case with credit products for example where you don't want to be constantly chopping and changing and making new applications because it'll hurt your credit score Mm, yes it will yeah in the case of your energy bill though there's no good reason why you shouldn't switch every year if you could be bothered to because over time that will save you thousands of dollars and that's what i do pretty much every year i switch my energy plan and sometimes my retailer then calls me up when they see to see that i'm leaving and they make me uh, an offer I can't refuse to stay. And so I stay for that reason. You know, I just basically stage a Dutch auction between them. Now, the Elizabeth Taylor is all about taking honeymoon deal after honeymoon <laughs> deal after honeymoon <laughs> deal. Because, of course. Why not? Just enjoy the honeymoons. <laughs> fantastic acting career, Elizabeth Taylor, is also famous for having had many honeymoons. So that's the basic idea of the Elizabeth Taylor. And I think it's a fun way of describing it, but it also works a treat. I've probably been with six, seven or eight different energy retailers over the years 
And that's how I've ensured that I'm always paying bottom dollar. Mm. Well, let's talk a little bit more about energy. I liked in your book how you talked about how your father had never really gone and negotiated with his energy company. And coincidentally, I had a dad who had never done the same until a couple of years ago when I was writing my book and I'd been blogging about this issue. And he rang me one day and said, Serena, is it true that I can actually call my energy company and ask for a better deal? And I said, Yes, Dad, you can. And in fact, I would really highly recommend you do that. So he did that. And I can't remember the exact amount he saved, and I should, but I think it was about $325, I think. I can't remember if it's all up or whether a quarter. Now, in preparation for this interview, I rang him again and I said, Dad, remember how two years ago you rang up your energy company? When was the last time you've done that? And he said, well, there's no need to anymore because there's new legislation in place that guarantees I get the lowest deal. And also I've got solar panels and they're painful. So I'm just going to stay with what I've got because I'm confident I've got the best deal. What would you say to my dear dad? Well, I would say to your dear dad that he's, he's half right and half wrong. There is some new legislation that came in in the middle of last year, which was very consumer friendly because you used to have this situation where once your one year fantastic discount offer ended, they could move you on to their absolute worst deal. And in some cases, it was $1,000 more expensive for an average household than the cheapest deal on the market. The, the gap between best and worst was enormous. Mm. What's happened is that governments have regulated to minimise the gap between what they call the default offer now and the cheapest market offers around. If you do nothing now, then they'll put you on what's called the default offer or the reference price. And that is sort of a price that's somewhere in the middle of the market and you won't be obviously as badly off as you were before. But if you continue to check every year that you're still on one of the cheapest deals around, there's about 300 odd dollars, depending on where you live, but for an average household, about $300 still between that default offer and the cheapest deals around. You can still save hundreds by shopping around. So I say to people, Business as usual. <laughs> Have a look every year and see what's out there. Make sure you're always on a cheap deal. What I'm amazed about is the amount of new players in the energy sector. In Canberra, where I live, we traditionally only had one player. I think we were one of the last markets to really open up and deregulate. But even here now, I think we've got four or five or maybe even six players. And obviously, larger places like Sydney, Melbourne, there's a lot more players. And they're not the traditional utility companies either, are they? Does that, how does that work for consumers? Look, in theory, it's great for consumers because it means choice and it means competition. And when it works, it's a good thing. And, and to the point where even now we're seeing some of these new energy retailers that have completely different pricing models to the traditional ones. Mm. Some of them now have subscription models where you pay them a monthly subscription fee and then they, they charge you cost price. In other words, wholesale price, what they, what they get charged for the energy you use. So there's, there's some really innovative and interesting new ways to pay for electricity that are emerging out of, that, out of that variety that's out there. And so, yeah, that's a good thing in theory. But the reality is 75% of people or something are still with the, with the big three retailers. Most of us either don't even know about these new companies or are not quite brave enough to try one of them. And that's fine because you can still get some really cheap deals out of the, out of the big three retailers. But the reality is most people either would never or will never switch to one of those smaller alternatives. Mm, it's interesting, isn't it? You would think, I mean, your loyalty doesn't count for much, I don't think, in terms of the big players. They're not sitting there going, well, Serena's been a loyal member for years and years and years and years and years. 
That's true. I mean, I think the loyalty is all but dead in most household bills that I look at, whether it's energy or insurances or or banking. There, there are very few meaningful rewards for your loyalty out there. There's some relatively meaningless rewards for your loyalty, which people seem to get attached to thinking that they have value, which when actually when you look really closely at it, they don't. You know, I'm thinking particularly of a lot of credit card reward schemes, mm-hmm. multi-policy discounts in insurance, some of those are not worth anywhere near as much as people think they are. But yeah, the the examples of loyalty, the of real real reward for loyalty are few and far between. Mm, so the red dogs are not as frequent <laughs> as people might think. That's right. You know, the subtitle of the book is The Nine Insider Tricks You Need to Win the War on Household Bills. Now, it was initially the eight insider tricks you need to win the war on household bills. And I realized, I looked at it and I thought, you know what, I'm not there's, there's nowhere in this book at the moment where, I, where I'm acknowledging that loyalty can pay and sometimes it does. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it does. So hence the ninth insider trick was born and that was the red dog, which is named after <laughs> that fantastic Australian movie about the dog that sort of travelled halfway around the world trying to find his lost master. Yeah. yeah, I hear you. I'm not really huge on frequent flyer points, but when I married my husband, Neil, he had done a lot of work-related travel over the years. So he has lifetime gold with Qantas, lifetime. He used to have platinum at various times. So suddenly the thought of travelling with that airline, knowing we would always have lounge access, became a lot more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, both of us are frugalistas, so we don't mind budget travel and we'll always put cost above convenience. But we will look at that as an option. You will think, well, is it worth us paying an extra $50, $60, for instance, if we're going to get that level of comfort, if it's a longer trip? We probably wouldn't pay several hundreds of dollars. But I am amazed, though, that for the amount of people that those things are really deeply significant. Yeah, and I think it all depends on your circumstances. If you are somebody who travels a lot, particularly for work, you have to take a common sense approach, right? If you are going to travel a lot for work, then travel as much as you can with the one airline and uh, build up your points in that scheme. Don't sort of spread your customer around. And and that's also, I think, I mean, I mentioned that as part of the Red Dog, is if you are, if you live in a one supermarket, one petrol station, one horse town, and everything's owned by Woolies or everything's owned by Coles, then of course, yeah, it makes sense for you to shop at Coles and get your petrol from Coles using the shopper docket you've got when you've bought your groceries at the supermarket. And then maybe you consider looking at Coles uh, mobile or you know financial services products like insurance, the other things that they sell, because it makes sense for you in those circumstances. If you're like me and you live in the city and you have an endless supply of different supermarkets and petrol stations and whatever, then I think it's probably best to just pick the eyes out of the market and and go with the best of each that you can find. Yeah, that does make sense. And you touched on petrol. So let's go and talk a bit about petrol. (laughs) This is an issue that the man in my life likes to follow a lot more closely than I do. And he has been noticing the extreme drop in petrol right now. Like not only are so many people stay at home, if they do choose to drive anywhere at all, it's a lot cheaper than ever before. And the difference, too, between the major players is is quite extreme. Now, let's see if I can remember my facts. Yesterday, no, Monday, when he went out to fill up the car, Costco was 88 cents a litre and the Woolworth Caltex next door was $1.17 a litre. Wow. And that was the four cents off. So $1.17 with the four cents off. So even with a eWish card at 5% off, That is huge. And that's two petrol stations right next to each other. That's extraordinary. And I found an example, a similar example, a couple of months ago 
in Sydney, there's an infamous petrol station in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, which is notorious for having the most expensive petrol in Sydney. And this was at a time when petrol was relatively cheap elsewhere. And there was one day where there was a 50 or a 60 cent a litre difference between this one petrol station in the eastern suburbs and another one that was only about three or four kilometres away. Wow. And sometimes you do see that. And it's, and it's just, it's mind boggling. And at the moment, particularly with, with petrol so cheap, I mean, I've been filling up under 90 cents for the past few days. And then, of course, not using any of that petrol because we're not going anywhere at the moment. That's the great tragedy of it. There's, <laughs> if only we could still pile that, eh? Instead of toilet paper and pasta. E- exactly. A bit volatile. It is amazing. It is such a volatile. I think, you know, I say in the book that I think what is different about petrol, and I think what the reason that petrol, that people really notice petrol prices and get so frustrated about them is, Imagine that every time you went for a drive on the roads, there were massive signs kind of five metres high that advertised different companies' energy prices, for example, electricity Mm. prices, or different companies' NBN or mobile rates. I mean, just the visibility of petrol pricing, it's unavoidable and it means that it's constantly on everybody's mind, whether they want to be thinking about it or not. And obviously, we're a nation of drivers and commuters and, you know, big sprawling cities mm. some people fill up twice a week and that really adds up yeah yeah i hear you canberra where we are public transport has traditionally not been as good as in the major cities i'm now living in an inner city location but still there's times where there's kids dental appointments or swimming lessons which aren't conveniently accessible by public transport there just aren't those options really if you if you don't drive it's very hard. It's just something I think you do have to budget for if you're going to live a, a normal kind of middle-class life. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think Australia has never done public transport particularly well. You know, maybe if you live in the inner suburbs of Melbourne, then um, you might feel well served for public <laughs> transport. But it's not. It's just not something that we've done well over the years. No, I'd agree with you. I lived in Taiwan twice, and the second time I was there for three and a half years in Taipei. And I remember I got really cranky one day because the subway, I just missed a train and I had to wait a whole five minutes for another. And each trip was like under a dollar. It was crazy. I would also like to ask you about what I consider is a very important issue facing a lot of families right now as as things are getting very difficult, and that's private health insurance. We've seen a number of private hospitals being nationalised now. The wait times are even longer than previously. The gap is large and, of course, premiums are going up. What to do about private health insurance? Yeah, this is a really interesting one at the moment. And it's actually very hard to give a definitive answer because it's it's such a moving picture at the moment. It is. Obviously, I think, and just this is a slight tangent, but it's sort of relevant as well. Now, we're running a campaign at the moment with one big switch for state governments to give some relief on car registration fees and, and compulsory insurance because so many mm-hmm. people aren't driving and particularly people who've lost work and are spending thousands on these things each year, getting no value from them, and the costs to government are are dropping, there's a fundamental principle, really, that if governments can't provide a service or aren't providing a service, they shouldn't be charging full price for it. Now, that goes for companies, for corporations as well. And that's the situation the health funds are in at the moment, because non-urgent elective surgery has been cancelled. Just in the last couple of days, they've announced that some more elective surgery will be allowed to go ahead as of next week. So they are loosening the restrictions a little bit but there's still a lot of lot of elective surgery that you can't get at the moment and that's that means that the costs for health funds have dropped quite radically and they have as a group made a promise that they won't profit from COVID-19 which means they're going to have to give some money back to their members but they're still trying to, to decide on a fund by fund basis 
in what form they're going to do that and how much. And I can see why, sort of understand why it's taking them a while to answer that question because, as I say, the rules around elective surgery have just changed in the last 24 to 48 <laughs> hours. And so they probably had a position ready to go and now they're going to have to change it again. But I think if you're a health fund customer and you've lost income, then your options are suspend your policy. Most of them are offering that for on a case-by-case basis for people who are in financial trouble. That's an option. Or contact your health fund and say, hey, what about it? You've said you're going to give some money back. I'm in trouble now. I need that money now. What can you do about it? Mm. And most of them, I think, will try to play ball with you. They know that if they lose thousands of customers during this crisis. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, potentially. Tens, hundreds of thousands. And you know, this is an industry that already is having trouble. Young people are leaving, coverage is dropping, coverage rates in the population are dropping. So they're already in, in a bit of trouble. And if they lose mm. hundreds of thousands of people, they won't get them back. So I would just say it's in your health fund's interest to keep you. So I'd just contact them and see if they can give you some form of relief in the form of maybe they can downgrade you to a, a different plan or suspend your policy for a while until your income bounces back, whatever it is. It is a tough one because the cost of health insurance is phenomenal. I was a bit curious earlier this year, so I added up the cost of insurance on my house. Uh, in this case, because I'm in a unit, it's only contents insurance, but still significant. The other insurances I have on my investment properties, motor vehicle insurances, and they all came in combined less than our health insurance. And am I getting the value from my health insurance if I need electric surge, electric, not electric, electric, elective <laughs> surgery? The gap is still potentially quite phenomenal. But then 13 years ago, I did need some elective surgery, neurosurgery, in fact. I'm, I'm quite okay, <laughs> just to put that out there. But it was a week before Christmas and I would never have got that surgery done but for my private health insurance. Mm. And well-being is so important. But the cost, it's really hard to justify for a lot of families. Oh, it is. And it's, look, it's gone up by about 70% over the past decade. That's being driven by the fact that we've obviously got a demographic bubble, mm-hmm. an aging population, older people, older people claim more. And also the cost of a lot of medical treatments is going up as well. Medical technology is driving up the costs. And there's a lot of fat in the system as well. You know, there, are, there are some specialists charging quite exorbitant fees, for example, that's been exposed in the last sort of six months it's really hard it is a re- it's a really like the average the average family policy now is around i think four thousand dollars or more and that that's a massive bill there's not many not many bills on the household budget that are bigger than health insurance and as you say until something goes horribly wrong you don't feel like you're getting a lot of value for it yeah exactly and if things do go really horribly 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 wrong often they're in the public system i was very lucky not to lose my husband two and a bit years ago to a heart attack and of course the most relevant hospital for him was a teaching hospital, was a public hospital, and so all his heart surgery could only have been done in a public hospital. My eldest child was born prematurely. I was very lucky not to lose him on his first night of life. Once again, the only hospital that could have catered for him was a public hospital, a teaching hospital, Mm. and all the costs of the humidity crib and so forth were thankfully covered for that. But then, like I said, I had to have elective surgery but not elective surgery you wanted to muck around with. (laughs) And, you know, there's a lot of elective surgery out there, which is very painful. You don't want to wait too long for those sorts of things. And you don't have that choice. That's where it gets hard. I mean, anything that's sort of emergency or urgent, you will probably end up in the public system. But when it's something that public system considers less urgent, and sometimes the waiting list could be weeks or, or months or more, then 
you'll be sort of thanking your lucky stars that you've got that private health insurance mm. and that you've paid those thousands of dollars <laughs> over the years just to, just to keep it even though it seemed like it would be an easy one to drop. Yeah, look, it's a really hard one and especially given the government effectively forces people using the tax system to take out health cover who, who otherwise, some people who, who otherwise wouldn't take out health cover. So it's not just a purely rational, is this a luxury I'm prepared to pay for question. It's also, oh, well, you know, what are the tax implications if I don't pay for it? And mm. it's, a, it's a complicated decision and it's not, it's not one that we, it's one that we make often under duress. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Joel, a lot of people obviously are doing it very difficult right now and changing economic circumstances and there's no good news just around the corner just yet. What are some pragmatic and practical things that people can do to save money now on their bills? And we've alluded to a few of them, but what are your top takeaways of how people can save money in difficult times? Sure. Okay. Well, look, I mean, I always say to start with the energy bill because as we discussed before, there are some fantastic, really easy to use websites around now that will rank every available deal for you from cheapest to most expensive and you'll just see it all in a matter of minutes. Also, one big switch where I work, we negotiate special deals for people. We almost always have an energy offer live. So just look, go to the government websites, go to one big switch, and you can literally save hundreds of dollars in a matter of minutes on your energy bill if you haven't done it before or you haven't done it for a couple of years. So that's a great place to start. Also, if we're working from home, schooling at home, doing everything from home as we are at the moment, you know, energy usage is up by about 20%. In most households coming into winter, wow, heating's coming on. It's going to be a really expensive time. Now's the time to make sure you're on a really good deal before the winter heating bill comes. The other thing I think is important for people is just to have a bit of a look around your household budget and address some of those, you know, look down the back of the couch and clean out some of those things that you've been probably known are wasteful for a while, but you've maybe been putting off. And a great example of that is Foxtel subscription TV. Mm-hmm. It's very hard. You know, some people still pay hundred to one hundred and fifty dollars a month for a pay TV subscription package. When those same companies, Foxtel is the great example, they now deliver the same content on their streaming services for half the price of their traditional subscription down the cable service. So wow. that's an obvious one. You can halve the cost of the same content. Obviously, if you're into sport, it's not happening at the moment anyway. Um, there's a massive potential saving there for people. And we do, everybody's watching a lot of Netflix and Stan and Foxtel now at the moment. So I think tidying up your sort of your content bill, your streaming bill, it's a really good time to do it at the moment, I think. I hear you. Obviously, NBN and mobile are big ones at the moment. People are using more. You don't want to be busting your data cap on your mobile plan, particularly that can get really expensive. Most providers are offering bonus data in this period and sometimes you've actually got to go and activate it in the app or apply for it it doesn't happen automatically so i think suss out what your provider is doing if there's some bonus data there for you that'll avoid you busting that cap which will which is an unnecessary extra bill and maybe also if you are particularly if you're a telstra customer chances are you're paying more than you have to Mm -hmm. some people do that with their eyes wide open and they really want the extra features that telstra products come with and if that's you, then good luck to you. But if you're just paying top dollar for Telstra because you haven't looked around or you're a bit afraid of switching, don't be. There are plenty of other options out there. And there's, look, even just on a, if you combine your mobile and your NBN bill, it's probably $600 worth of savings out there for an average household by switching from the most expensive plans 
two of the cheapest plans out there, and it's really, really easy. Just check out a site like whistleout.com.au, for example. I reckon they're the best telco comparison site around at the moment and very easy to use. I, I would agree with you there, and the savings to be made are huge. Just to share, uh, my in-laws live in a country area outside of Canberra where the only real coverage option is Telstra. So for many years they were with Telstra. So they were on a mobile plan each, which was $45 a month, and it was one gigabyte of data and no calls. They switched to Aldi, which, as you know, runs off the Telstra system. They noticed no difference in coverage. Initially, it was one gigabyte of data, and it's now moved to three gigabytes of data. $15 a month and they also get free calls. They love it. (laughs) That's fantastic, you know. And I and I also say when I when I there's a groceries chapter in the book and I and I do, I say to people you should shop at more than one supermarket and one of them should be Aldi. Because the reality is they do what they do very well. And if you're in the money saving business, you definitely need to get you get to know Aldi's products if it's an option. If you live in a place where there is an Aldi, check it out because uh, it's very cheap. And it's often very good quality too. Beware the middle aisles though. We actually love the middle <laughs> aisles, but we're aware of their temptations. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, Joel, thank you so much. I have learned so much and I really appreciate you sharing your wisdom. And I'm sure that a lot of people going through difficult and tough times right now will greatly benefit from your book. Now, how can people connect with you? Look, I'm on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Kill Bill's book is the handle I use on all three of those. And also my own personal Twitter, at Joel Gibson. So any of those places you can find me. And I'll usually sort of post regular updates about what we're doing at One Big Switch or what I'm doing in my sort of columns and TV segments and whatever. But feel free to just fire a question through. It's always interesting to know what people are what people want to know. And sometimes it gives me an idea for something to go away and do some research on. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks. You've been listening to the joyful Frugalista with Serena Bird. She actually likes everybody. And of course, sound has been by Neil Hadley. And myself, I'm Joseph McGrail Baitup. You gotta accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative, latch on to the affirmative, don't mess with Mr. In Between. 